Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Mark Boom, President and CEO of Houston Methodist. Mark and I left off last time talking about disruption in healthcare. Mark, thanks for coming back. It's a pleasure to be back. We talked about a lot of things last time. This time, I'd like to take a foray into our latest research and our current undertaking. Uh, We're taking a new look at an old question, uh, that being whether healthcare is a right or a privilege. And I think the answer is more than philosophical. In fact, uh, I'm convinced that with 40 years of market failure, the underlying reason for the market's failure to arrive at sustainable spending, in my mind, is that uh, we've been treating healthcare as what economists would refer to as a private good, a private good being something like a car or a wristwatch, where we're not terribly worried if those who can't afford it don't have one. By contrast, a common good in economic terms is maybe something more like clean water. And certainly, uh, we would not want someone who didn't have the means to pay for water to not have any. And what I think is troublesome is that the market works perfectly fine for private goods, where we can tolerate that lack of access. But for common goods, uh, the market is, uh, it, it turns out the market is just not a, a terribly good solution. So what would you say if if I suggested that we think about moving to a rate-regulated financing model for healthcare? So I think I'm on to you, Tom. I think I've been listening to some of your podcasts and figured out your structure. You send up all the softball questions, episode one, and then you bring us back for episode two. Um, <laughs> well, you wouldn't come back if I... if I I'm going to sign off there. now. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no. So seriously, uh, yeah, and that, that's a, you know, that's a how long do you have question, right? We could talk about that till kingdom come and probably be better uh, with some cocktails. Um, but uh, it's a complicated question. Um, and I fear, you know, like most things, um, the answer's not one or the other. The answer's somewhere in between. And the answer's very complicated. And that model, I would argue, could be a little oversimplified. So let's, let's think about that common good statement. And then I'm going to come to the right privilege statement. So when you use a water analogy, right, water is a pretty simple model. Um, I expect my water. I want clean water. It's critically important. In fact, it's probably one of the reasons we live as long as we do today compared to 150 years ago. Most clearly is. But at the end of the day, I can't really impact it. I don't understand much about it. It just shows up in my pipes. I use more. I pay more. Um, The choices I make don't really affect others. Um, If it goes really, really wrong, like pipes burst and they ruin my house, uh, I have insurance for when it goes really, really wrong. Healthcare is a lot more complicated than that, right? And um, I don't think it's a commodity. I'd ask you the question, I love Vizient. You know, we're very active users of Vizient's data. In fact, that's, to me, always been the, the strongest part about Vizient and UHC uh, before it. Should we pay the number 100 hospital that's getting those kinds of results the same way we pay the number one hospital? I think that's a very fair question in a country that's built itself on excellence um, and competition. In healthcare, my decisions affect other people. You know, the classic example of that right now, and this is going to sound a little harsh, but it's COVID-19 vaccines. We know the answer to get out of this pandemic. We know the answer to prevent suffering, death, and cost. 
and that's to get vaccinated. So if I was going to be really, really harsh, if somebody chooses not to be vaccinated, yet they had all the opportunity, why is everybody else paying for them um, to get their health care? I know I'm being harsh. I get it. But I'm just uh, being harsh to, to make a point here. And at the end of the day, we don't have insurance in healthcare. We pay for everything first dollar. So it's a lot more complicated than that. So then you get into this question you asked of right versus privilege. And like everything else, it's probably somewhere in between. It's much, much, much closer to a right. Let me be clear. I think it is one of the most appalling things that as the richest country on earth, and I think the most successful model that that the planet has ever seen in terms of a country, that we can't get this right. And that we have so many people who lack access to healthcare and lack healthcare coverage. I mean, this is, this is a tragedy. Um, but clearly there are personal aspects to this there are decisions we make that are interconnected. And healthcare is a very complex interconnection between access issues, right? Can I get to a physician? Can I get the medications? Can Are they covered? I mean, access to insurance, a complicated interconnection with the social determinants of health, many of which actually, you know, and I'm a primary care physician, probably matter more than the things I do as a primary care physician many times um, for people. And we have a healthcare structure where healthcare in the U.S. basically fills in an inadequate social safety net, um, but isn't designed to do that, which is what you're touching on right now. Uh, and so we get what we pay for from a societal standpoint. And so when we look at societal questions, we don't have the results other countries have, not even remotely, um, from uh, sort of an overall population health structure. But I firmly believe that if you're really, really sick in our sick care system, there's nowhere better to be than in the United States. And so how do we preserve that while we also then figure out how to address the other issues um, that are out there? And so this is a big, tough question. So let's get to your you know, kind of rate regulation standpoint. Um, I guess the question I'd have would be, you know, where have we seen that really work for something that's complicated and who's going to set the rules? Um, I watch uh, COVID right now. I watch the dysfunction of government um, throughout COVID. I watch the politicization of what are medical and clinical and scientific issues. And I say, how do we get to a system like that, that I think that's ultimately a governmental responsibility that isn't so politicized that it becomes just a horrible mess? Uh, and that's a big concern of mine. So I think it's an interesting concept. Um, I think it should be piloted to some extent. Of course, we have a decades-long pilot in uh, the state of Maryland. Um, we've not seen that spread out to other areas. And I think one of the questions we need to ask in healthcare is how do we find great ideas, interesting ideas, that's one of them. Put people in a room like you, like me, a lot of clinical people and say, let's come up with the most uh, plausible, most logical ideas, recognizing the system isn't where it needs to be. Letting healthcare industry drive it, not, not be driven to us. And that's a big part of your question here as well, I think. How do we do that? But then how do we pilot those? You know, when we came up with, you know, other things in the past, oftentimes they're sort of jammed down everybody's throat without a clear roadmap. We don't ever get there if you look at the political process and everything that's happened in the last decade. Um, I'd love to see us pilot things, decide on things, take different markets and look at different solutions, agree upon the metrics, and over time then come back and say, okay, which worked, which didn't work, and then have the fortitude as a society to implement those things broad-based that work. Yeah, I don't think we disagree very substantially at all. In fact, uh, I was fascinated. Uh, you'll remember Mark Kerouac from Bay State in Massachusetts, and I was uh, having a conversation in this setting with Mark uh, recently. He's very liberal in his thinking, 
But when he's asked the question, is healthcare a right or a privilege? He answers the privilege question in the negative. And the reason that he called that distinction out is that not everything can be a right. If we think about things that are inside of folks' control, you know, I decide to jump out of an airplane without a parachute and hurt myself. Is that something everybody should be responsible for? Purely elective things. Uh, You know, I'd like to golf a little better, so I get my knee replaced uh, to play better golf rather than to restore function. I think there are unanswered questions in terms of what would be included in, in the right versus privilege. And I'm not uh, as worried about the privilege and the right question as I am worried about what we're paying ourselves for things. And so to your earlier point, I don't think a high acuity provider taking care of very complicated cases would be paid the same price as a lower acuity provider or even someone who was doing a, not as spectacular a job. But what I would like to see is all of the payers, government and private, paying each of those providers the same amount, not as each other, but as a group of payers. So, you know, having the government underpay and having the private sector overpay puts you guys in a situation where, try as you might to be blind to it, you're probably from time to time forced to look at things like maybe we need to invest in the suburbs because we have to have a certain amount of private pay patients to subsidize the the, the publicly funded. And so I'd kind of like to get us to a point where you can make clinical decisions that are completely payer agnostic. Well, there's no question nobody would design the system that we have today, right? Yep. The, the cross-subsidization that occurs, gross underpayment by the government uh, entities, particularly Medicaid, um, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the massive number of uninsured that we still deal with, particularly in a state like Texas, nobody would design that system. It's grossly inefficient. It's grossly unfair. Um, and uh, ultimately, it drives decision-making, you know, that doesn't make sense. If you take a map of most regions, most geographies, overlay where the hospitals are, or even more so, overlay where all of the private, for-profit, small clinical entities are with, you know, the basically the economics of of a zip code map, it's going to be incredibly telling, right? Nobody builds in certain parts of the community. We rely on a safety net for those areas. And that's what you're getting at. Um, I don't know that it's a rate regulation. Every payer pays the same. It's addressing the access issue. And it's addressing this issue of getting everybody coverage. Um, and unfortunately, our country can't seem to get that conversation sorted out, right? We've had some very noble approaches. And you can look back upon the last decade plus and say, look, you might have liked Obamacare. You might not have liked Obamacare. You might be on this end, that end politically. But let's objectively look at the data, right? I mean, my goal always is to be data-driven, apolitical. If you look at the data, way more people have coverage today than they had before. If you look at the data, we had some cost issues that happened kind of especially early on with that, right? We saw that in many of those networks. But a decade later, we've covered a lot of people. Yet in many states, um, still like like mine, we have a whole bunch of people that haven't been covered because we can't answer the question societally and politically how to get there. And that's that's fundamentally what we have to do as a society so we can make these changes. Uh, and then it is thinking about our 
communities as a population, whether you call it payer agnostic, rate setting, whatever you're, you're calling it, it's really being able to not have to make decisions to say, well, everything that gets built gets built in the same suburb because that's where the people with insurance are. Um, we need to get away from that kind of structure societally. That's actually a critical point in the, um, in the deliberation that's going on, kind of rattling around in, in my head. You know, it, it shouldn't have taken COVID to uh, increase the visibility of health disparities. But I think many of us, certainly I'll put myself in this category, I'm, I'm more aware of them, or at least I'm paying closer attention to them on a regular basis than, than perhaps I was um, before the pandemic. As I think about health disparities, I think that disparities in general are an, an inescapable consequence of a free market. You and I both went to different but uh, prestigious business schools. In the classroom when we were long ago studying business, market segmentation is a, is a business strategy. And looking at the market and, and seeing the market as not everybody the same is, is kind of the way businesses uh, function. So I would suggest that disparities, not just health disparities, but, you know, disparities in ownership of an automobile, ownership of a home, disparities are not, it's not just that markets don't fix disparities. I think markets create disparities. And so how do we, how do we reconcile our discomfort with health disparities, with the idea of the free market will handle it. You know, I think at the end of the day, one of the challenges we have um, really is the lack of a social safety net in the United States. And healthcare has become the default social safety net, which is fine. But then we need to explicitly acknowledge that, explicitly pay for that. So, you know, I think ultimately the answers have to be figure out how to get everybody that coverage, um, figure out how we look at things from a population basis, uh, and then really tackle what we need to do. So, you know, what would that look like? Um, you know, one is explicitly pay for give accountability and hold accountability for broad-based health of a population. To do that, we have to redesign how we think about things societally. Um, we obviously saw a lot of that during COVID. I mean, look at how the major institutions in the country, academic medical centers are the large systems, stepped up and basically filled in the role of public health. Um, again, that's okay, but let's be explicit about that. Let's think about that. Let's pay for that. Let's move that forward. We have to together address the fundamental underpinning issues of poverty, of access to care, uh, and, you know, lots of creative opportunities to do that. Um, something we are very actively working with federally qualified health center uh, partners and others, but the reality is there's not a global structure to do that still, and we need to figure that out. And if we were doing that, we need to rethink how we tackle primary care. Um, right now, uh, there's a very big difference between kind of routine primary care, complex primary care, chronic care management. Um, we haven't talked about technology, but technology is a huge opportunity to technologically enable what we do. Um, we, we saw that in COVID. Um, how do we take those advancements and meet people where they want to be met? fix some of the rural health care issues, fix some of the other access to health care issues that are not necessarily going to be a capital intensive solution because we now have virtual solutions that are not as capital intensive. 
Care today really is not there in many cases, but needs to be part of a multidisciplinary team. And social workers, case managers, mental health workers um, are vastly under uh, populated as part of this approach that we need to rethink um, through there. If we're going to move forward, you know, so much care, particularly around the complex care is around multidisciplinary teams, both physician-based, but then many others uh, as well uh, that are critically important. I mean, these are all things that that we need to fix, we need to focus on and fix. We've not talked about the cost of pharmaceuticals and devices and the impact of technology on healthcare and the impact of technology on cost. I mean, one of my favorite things to complain about is is TAVR, you know, which is, you know, the minimally invasive way to uh, replace an aortic valve. Um, a miracle of science, so much better than it used to be. We care for people we couldn't have cared for before. The costs in the hospital system plummeted, which is a great thing, right? Now we should be saving people tons of money because instead of ripping open their chest and long hospital stays and everything else, um, we can literally send somebody home the next morning. But the way the manufacturers came in is they priced the devices to fill in that entire gap. So when you look at it societally, it cost us at least as much, if not more. Hepatitis C therapy, a miracle of science. Um, but when the manufacturers uh, came out with it, they said, what's the lifetime cost of hepatitis C? And they priced it just under that. So it saved society a sliver. But the marginal cost of another hep C treatment is very, very low. And yet we pay you know, tens and tens of thousands of that. So we have to rethink and structure some of that from a market perspective. That is clearly a place of the total free market is not uh, working for us right now. And of course, embedded in all this, we'll need to rethink MD compensation and focus uh, as we do those things and change the focus for people. And very importantly, we need to figure out how technology, AI, et cetera, come into the mix. So an example of that would be radiology, right? There's this question of, as we have more, more and more AI, does radiology need to exist in its current fashion? Are we going to need way fewer radiologists? And my answer to that is I don't want fewer radiologists, but what I want the radiologists then focusing on is the high, high end. If I've got machine learning basically flagging, you know, a chest x-ray for a, for a mass or, you know, pick your AI utilization there, how do I use that individual who's the most knowledgeable person in the institution about the right study at the right time, et cetera, et cetera, to leverage them to be there side by side with a primary care physician or with a specialist to say, you know, don't order the CT because in this case, the MRI will be a more effective tool or whatever, you know, whatever the answer will be. There are so many opportunities to redesign what we do, but we need to think about the, the kind of compensation structure and a fee for service structure is ultimately probably not the right answer long-term. We have to have a clear roadmap to change that. You know, I, I hearken back to a, a session that I participated in at your alma mater uh, at the Wharton School a few years ago, and I was as frustrated as you are uh, when I, I was listening to a presentation about the gene splice for hemophilia. And, and I just kind of shook my head at the fact that it seemed like the, the pricing uh, decision was to take a lifetime's worth of, of blood transfusions, uh, take the net present value of that minus a dollar, and that was what we were going to charge for the gene splice. And it's, you know, that's the way that corporations make business decisions, but it shouldn't, I don't think, be the way that healthcare uh, makes its uh, decisions on, on what the patients get and, and, and how far the money goes. Completely agree. Let me ask you one more tough question before we close on something a little bit more lighthearted. Um, 
it goes back to this idea of cross-subsidization between private and public and, and the private sector uh, filling the void that the public sector has created by underpaying for much of what it purchases. It strikes me that it puts hospitals, not guys like you, but probably smaller community hospitals, lower acuity places, puts them in a disturbing position of having to chase private sector surgical volume in an effort to uh, to, to make the math work. And where I think it leads us is to a situation where we find ourselves with what I refer to as high-risk, low-volume surgical programs. And when we look at, uh, at markets around the country, Mark, I'm struck by the prevalence of low-volume surgical programs operating far below published proficiency thresholds in the medical literature. And it's not just that there are high-volume alternatives available within that market. It's more often the case that there are high-volume alternatives available within the same health system. Why do you think that health systems have failed to consolidate clinical programs uh, and, and to move toward uh, eliminating some of these high-risk, low-volume programs that would be better uh, done someplace else? Yeah, you've hit on a real big issue we, that that I think we have within the industry, and it and it really is one that we should be self sorting out. You know, when you take a step back and you say, "Why are we in the business?" I mean, we call it unparalleled safety, quality, service, and innovation. We put it in that order on purpose. Safety comes first, but nowhere in that sentence there as a not for profit did you hear unparalleled, you know profitability or or finances, right? I've always been of the philosophy that when we do those things right, the finances follow, and then the finances are there to make those things even better, right? We're a not-for-profit at the end of the day. And so um, it needs to be a very explicit focus, and I'll tell you our approach. Um, now, we're in Houston. Houston's huge, um, sprawling. Um, the site, I mean, the, the geography is, you know, bigger than the state of New Jersey. It's almost as big as the state of Massachusetts. Um, and have seven acute care hospitals, one LTAC across that geography. You know, we're very much an academic medical center that then said, hey, we're going to enter the community and built that over the last 25 years. Uh, and so most of the hospitals we have in the community, we built and chose the sites. And as we talked about before, you can bet they're pretty suburban markets that are growing pretty fast and have a lot of commercial market, given, of course, the realities. Um, but we've also very purposefully located those to where the closest one to me driving is about 18 miles away, which in Houston can be a really long drive. Um, and, you know, many of them are much farther than that. We've purposely never put them on top of each other and have not been in uh, acquisitive mode where we, we end up with some of those happening sort of, you know, unintentionally. And so we fortunately managed to avoid most of that and then have had to ask ourselves the questions of what do you do where? And there's a couple of drivers, right, that, that can get you in trouble. One is the clear-cut economic driver of many of those things pay a lot. And the other is patient demand, physician demand, geography, right? I mean, if you don't do it in a market, well, will your competitor just do it in the market? And then you've lost that market. Those are realities that every hospital uh, executive um, faces. That being said, the smallest of our community hospitals, you know, for example, doesn't have any sort of heart surgery program because we couldn't do it 
the right way, that we would be up to our standards, up to what we call leading medicine. Um, and so I think it takes a discipline from leadership to, to recognize, acknowledge those things are real, um, but to have the fortitude in the backbone to say, you know, safety, quality come first, and we can't do it that way, um, and to, to fix those issues um, internally. A lot of that is, I mean, Vizian's been really useful for us because I hold that tool up to every one of our institutions. And if we can't meet something at one of our institutions like the others, it's either fix it or we're not going to be doing it there. And uh, that's a very useful tool, but you have to have a, a light shined on that. It, it gets more complicated in some other geographies, right? A rural market, um, a really packed urban market and some others um, where you might end up with some things on top of each other or in case of a rural market where you may be the only one around. And I think there's going to be some very creative solutions to that going forward. And part of that is, of course, we have to take it to where a barely able to survive rural hospital doesn't basically say, well, I have to do the six knee replacements a year that I do with some circuit riding orthopedist because they are the economic engine of my institution and figure out a payment mechanism where they can make a different kind of decision, where they can partner with a larger center farther away, but to recognize that, hey, all the preoperative, postoperative follow-up can happen there. A lot of it can happen virtually. We'll create financial models where it makes sense for both parties um, and need the latitude to do that so that they can do that. And, you know, that's an easy example, but where that surgery could happen, for example, in a high volume center that, that has better results. We have to rethink those kinds of models. And I think that with virtual care now, um, a lot of the answers staring us in the face to start to fix these issues. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm not for a moment suggestive that there's not a place for big, sophisticated health systems in the delivery of, of medicine. I just think that when we talk about economies of scale and when we talk about the rationalization for um, establishing these, these big health systems, one of the things that, that I would have uh, put forward as the, perhaps the strongest argument is to have the scale to make those tough decisions as to where we do what and to smooth things out for system affiliates who maybe were uh, dependent on surgery that should be done someplace else. So let's make sure that they're okay uh, because as a system, we have the scale to be able to do that. So I'm thrilled to hear you say that you guys were more purposeful in not just the decisions that you made, but actually the way that you created your own system. It's less an accidental amalgamation of, uh, of previously independent facilities and more a purposeful step-by-step uh, -step approach. I, I, I wish more people had done it that way. Yeah, and it's never easy, right? I mean, one fun, I mean, kind of favorite anecdote I have is, you know, one of our community hospitals, which is wonderful, and it's 350 beds. It's really sophisticated now, does lots of great things, right? And one day we're we're planning and talking, and one of the, you know, surgeons who's there, who's excited, who's proud, and I love it. I love seeing that. It's like, yeah, next comes transplant. <laughs> I looked at this individual, and I was like, we will never, ever, ever, ever do transplant outside of the main academic medical center. We don't need more than one site in the city of Houston um, internally to do that. But, but, building a transplant program where that patient who lives 40 miles away on the outskirts of Houston, where it's an hour and a half drive every time here, and then, you know, and doing that where all the pre-transplant clinics, the post-transplant clinics, et cetera, et cetera, the, the, the kind of 
tippity tip of the knife, really sophisticated, high-end part of it is going to always happen at this site, but there's no reason we can't leverage being a sophisticated system and create a much more efficient patient journey. And of course, now with technology and everything else, that's going to be even more. And so we've, that's where our focus has been. Um, and so it does take purposeful management. That's an extreme example, of course, but it takes purposeful management around all of those things. Taver, which we already talked about, was one of those things we held off and held off and held off saying we would do it anywhere but in the mothership until it became so commonplace uh, and became a reality and then put in place very, very rigorous requirements to be able to do it um, in other locations um, because it was what the clinicians were demanding, the patients were demanding, and we knew at that point it was commonplace and well-studied enough, well-trained enough and uh, necessary uh, that there was a demand that we could do it safely and effectively um, you know, at more than one site. Great to hear, and I'm hoping that folks take inspiration from the way that you're thinking about it. I know you have a health system to run, so I need to be respectful of your time. But before I let you go, uh, the next time that I come down to Houston to see you, I think I can skip going to any of the local restaurants because the word is out that, that you're quite a cook. How did you get interested in cooking, and what are some of your favorite things to make? Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll make a date. You come on over, I'll, I'll cook for you. But uh, so, you know, kind of in medical school, my wife and I met in college, um, both pre-med, she's a pediatrician. And uh, in medical school, um, most of what we ate was, I think it was budget gourmet. I think we had a $2 a day budget or something like that. And eventually I tired of that so much. I was like, I got to do something else. Um, and I'd always been a little bit interested in cooking. My mom was a great cook. So I just started self-teaching and it became a real hobby. And we hosted every family holiday and all those celebrations. And so I've always been the the cook for our family and and the person who gets food on the table. We have three kids, and that's kind of one of the ways my wife and I handle a two career situation. And frankly, if if we didn't do it that way, I'd be eating a lot of grilled cheese um, and scrambled eggs because <laughs> that's about the extent of her desire to cook. Um, and uh, uh, but I, so I love it. And over the years, uh, really got into kind of the gourmet side and so busy now. I don't do as much of the day to day. We, you know, find other ways to do that sometimes, but, uh, but still I'm kind of the point person of making sure we all get fed. Uh, but love to do that. It's a, a real treat on the weekend. So Hawaiian cooking's always been fun because it's a place we like to go. Um, but probably the thing I've really gotten into of late, uh, my parents are from Belgium. They immigrated right before I was born. And I can't really find a close by good Belgian restaurant. It's not the most common thing. And there's a couple of classic dishes. So I worked really hard, for instance, to be able, and this isn't the healthiest primary care thing, but to be able to make really good frites, which are, you know, French fries, but Belgians don't say French fries because they invented the fry, <laughs> not, not French. Um, and I kind of have that all worked out and it's a favorite weekend deal and, you know, a little bit of an effort to do that. And my father turned 80 this year and we managed to surprise him, brought my brother in from California, which he didn't realize it was uh, able to do that safely with thanks to vaccines. And I really worked hard to pick up classic recipe that his mother used to make. His mother was a horrible cook, um, but she made the best frit and she made the best, what are called mul or mul frit, which is mussels and fries, which is kind of the national dish of Belgium. And so uh, managed to order some mail order from a really great place on the West Coast. They were the best mussels we'd had in a long time and just surprised him. It was just such a neat event. So that's now in my armamentarium. And the other thing I made since a couple of my kids don't really like mussels is I made uh, carbonade flamant 
Gourmand, which is a, think of beef bourguignon, which is a, a beef stew with red wine that the French are known for. Well, the Belgians, of course, you know, um, have all the wonderful beer. So they make that with dark beer. And I have a really great recipe using uh, a dark beer. So come on over. I'll make you some some good Belgian food and we'll drink some good Belgian beer. Uh, that's it's, It sounds fantastic. You know, Sandy and I were in Bruges and, and in Brussels and I... I'm with you. They're not French fries. They're potatoes that the Belgians have figured out what to do with. And uh, how many times do you run them through the fryer to to, uh, to get them right? Yeah, that's one of the secrets. You got to get the size right. I'm very particular about that. So I have a cutter to get them uh, kind of the right size. And there are some different sizes, but there's kind of a classic Belgian size. And then they are actually cut. You rinse them like crazy, get rid of all the starch. They actually go in my fridge in a bucket of water with a whole bunch of ice on them for a good while to get them nice and cold. That helps crisp them up, but it also keeps them fluffy in the middle. And then you cook them at a low temperature for a first fry and put them on the side. You can actually do that hours ahead. And then the last fry, like right when everybody's there and you don't do too much at a time, uh, is a really high temperature for a couple minutes. So that double fry is one of the secrets. There um, you go. So they're, they're really yummy. You can't quite get them the same because the potatoes are a little different in Belgium, but russet potatoes will work real well in the United States for that. So, Well, I, I know where I'm not going to eat the next time that I'm in Houston. I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up and then I'll get a rental car and swing by. How's that? <laughs> and I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple pills of Lipitor on the side. For you, so. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Mark, listen, you have been a huge supporter of our work for many, many years and more important, a wonderful friend to me. It's been great having you with us on these podcasts and even better getting a chance to catch up after we've gone way too long without seeing each other. I can't wait until we're back together in person. Thanks a million for joining us. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>